0: Guys, um, you—I you, don't know how much you remember of last week. I, I remember uh, a, a pretty good bit of it. <laughs> but one of the things that did strike me is that as I roamed through the room, I had several people say, uh, "Oh, my brain is hurting." You know, they were because we were talking about this whole this whole concept of both and. Do you remember that? Um, it it would be a whole lot easier if um, if it were just one. Um if it were just god 's plan or if it was the, the actions of moral free moral agents um i don 't know what moral agents but it 's both it 's not either or it 's both and um, and that that really sets people uh, at least to thinking and um sometimes coming to uh Conclusions that are at least uh, tending towards a headache, but um, I, I wanted to try and give you at least uh, an illustration of that whole thing tonight. As we start, um, before we get to new material, because one of the things that people ask me, um, and, and, I, and I bet you they've been, I bet you you've been asked this: Why do we pray when the Bible in Matthew six, Jesus teaches this that? The Lord knows what you need before you pray. Okay, if the Lord knows what I need before I pray, then why pray? If I'm supposed to, if he, if I'm supposed to ask for things why, and he already knows what, why am I asking in the first place? I'm suggesting to you that only this both and can offer you an answer to that question. Um, apart from this both and, there is no question to what you've just posed about prayer. Um, <clears throat> and I want to I show you, I want to illustrate it to you tonight. Okay, This both and over the topic of prayer, over the difficulty of, well, he already knows I'm supposed to pray, why am I supposed to pray? To me. That, that's the issue. The topic is prayer, but I want to show you uh, how it kind of, Uh, surfaces in the scriptures. To do that, go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, um, just to tell you a little bit about the the setting. This is God dealing with Abraham. This is at the very beginning of um, uh, God's redemptive people, but he's dealing with Abraham, and this is the chapter where it says, and Abraham believed God and reckoned to him for righteousness, but I want you to go down to verses, really, um, this is where the covenant the you know, pieces of the animals and they walk through. But look at verse 13. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, what land is that? Well, everybody knows in this room that it's referring to Egypt. If you have any doubts as to whether it's Egypt and that that um, that period down there, then you should consult um, Oh Exodus um, uh, twelve forty that talks about that the people of Israel lived in Egypt four hundred and thirty years. Now, gang, um, this is being said. I'm going to take a guess, but six hundred. 800 years before it took place. So God is telling Abraham, you know, there's going to be some, uh, you know, some descendants, you know, and then they're going to go to this land that they're, you know, it's not their own land. They're going to be sojourners there for 430 years, but I'm going to get them out of there. And how does he get them out? Who does it, who leads them out? Well, that would be Moses. But here's the question, guys. Not who got them out, who got them in? Who is the one that got him to Egypt in the first place? Well, that would be, as you all know, Jacob. You know, Jacob and the 12 boys who were starving up there in the famine, and so they go down there, and he discovers that, you know, the guy that's giving off the food is the guy that we sold into slavery. Remember all that? So who is it that got them down there? Jacob got him into Egypt. Now, by the way, before he can ever get him out, he's got to get him in. So it's Jacob that leads him in there. Now, you got that little part stuck in your head? Now go over to chapter 25 with me. Let me, let me give you uh, where we are here. Uh, chapter 25, uh, verse 8 says, Abraham breathed his last and died. So Abraham's dead. Who is it that moves to the forefront of the redemptive story in the Old Testament now that Abraham's dead? His name would be Isaac. That was the son, you know, that he took to the mountain. He was going to slay him. You know, don't do that. you know. That's Isaac now. And Isaac has got a wife. What's his wife's name? His wife's name Rebecca. Remember how he, uh, they procured Rebecca? We're going to talk about that next week. But uh, now Rebecca and Isaac are married, but they got a problem. Look at it. Um, uh, it's verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Oh, no. Abraham's dead, and the great patriarch Isaac is now in front. But he's got a wife who's barren. Um, And notice what it says. um, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. Do you see that? Gang, the Lord granted his prayer, and she gets pregnant. Who does she bear? Jacob and Esau. Remember the first set of twins? Now, Jacob and Esau, who did we say was the one that got them into Egypt? Jacob. So there he is getting born. He's a part of this plan that God told Abraham about 800 years earlier. But here's the point I want you to see. Jacob's being born is called unanswered a prayer. How about that? God knew about Jacob 800 years earlier, probably a millennia earlier, because there was a plan that he was executing. Now what did I do? Um, don't you come out here and just touch this thing. <laughs> Guys, do you see that point? God comes to Abraham and says, Listen, you're gonna get into Egypt, and you know who's gonna, oh, Jacob's gonna be there. Who's gonna lead him out there? Jacob. Ah, okay, Jacob. But now where's Jacob? Who's gonna bear? Oh, Rebecca's gonna bear Jacob. And um, and but Isaac, oh God, would you give me, give me a son? And God gives him Jacob. According to what? A plan. However, it's called answered prayer. So why do you pray? Because both of those things are true, ladies and gentlemen. God sovereignly... (laughs) Don't laugh at this. (laughs) Okay, I mean, do, do you see that, guys? The plan that is established and articulated and defined in chapter 15, unfolds in chapter 25, but the scriptures itself calls it the result of Isaac having wrestled with God in prayer. There they are. Both of them. God's plan and man's moral free agency. You need to pray, even though God knows what you need. That's what you're seeing right here. That's what unfolds, folks. So you, your, your little brain may go, pow, okay. But that hasn't changed what the Bible presents. That two things are, are both true. And we'll figure it out in eternity, perhaps. But the plan and answered prayer, all in the same story. All right. Now, um, that really is... a reference to things last week. Tonight we move back to or we're moving back to the whole issue of providence, or we're still there, and we got probably one more week, maybe next week, Lord willing. Um but tonight I'd like to talk to you about some applications. How how does believing in the providence of God how does it affect your soul? Over what matters is it important that you um, that you embrace this whole idea of providence? Thomas Watson is a name. Well, um, is a name that you probably haven't heard of. I brought a four volume set by Thomas Watson just to let you know this guy was a dude. These are all by Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan. Um. He writes a book on the Lord's Prayer, a a book on uh, the Beatitudes, on the Ten Commandments, and then he writes uh, a book on the Shorter Catechism. Um, Well respected, but um, uh, Thomas Watson called Providence the Regina Monday. That's an I. Regina Monday, the Queen of the World. Um, that the whole idea of providence was, it is the Regina Mundy. She is the governess of the world. Um, Listen to what he has to say. It is the eye that sees and the hand that turns all the wheels in the universe. God is not like an artificer that builds a house and then leaves it, but like a pilot, he steers the ship of the whole of creation. That's Thomas Watson. We're going I got a few more quotes from him because he is what he wrote was marvelous. But gang, if you believe in providence the way I believe in providence and the way that Thomas Watson believes in providence. I'm not sure you do, but if you do, then the controlling principle is this. Nothing in life is ever accidental. God never says, I wish I had done things differently. God has always chosen the best means for the highest and greatest ends. And gang, you see that in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is dealing with his thorn in the flesh and and God tells him, that's enough. I want you to have that. Because when you're when you're weak, that's when you're strong. And my grace is sufficient for you. So God doesn't say, oh, Paul, I'm really sorry. I, I, you know, I didn't mean it to go like that. I wish I'd have done things differently. No, ladies and gentlemen. The operative principle in this whole thing on providence that I'm teaching is that there is nothing in life that is accidental. Now, gang, um, what I have... Three applications for you tonight, and I only think we're going to get through two. I think we might have time to get through two of them, and we'll come back and finish it up next week. The first area where providence will serve you well, it will be the pillow on which you lie your head at night, is in a period of spiritual suffering, of whatever kind you might like to identify, because there's a variety of them. Um, in those times of spiritual suffering, folks, um, there, there, there are times in the life of the believer where God seems to withdraw, or at least he withdraws our awareness of his presence. Um, th- there are times when the word does not seem to comfort and God's people don't know how to encourage us. When God seems to simply have abandoned us and he leaves us with the bare promise of I will never leave you nor forsake you when in fact it certainly feels like that. Gang, if you don't believe me, did you know, has anybody ever told you about Psalm 88? Well, folks, you don't need, I mean, you can, you can read it all you like, but I hope you will. But gang, of all the, the, the uh, this is the only Psalm that I know like this in the, in the psalmendry. Um, but there's not one ray of light in it. It doesn't close on the last verse. Oh, but I have victory in Jesus. In fact, the last word of Psalm 88 is the word darkness. My companions have become darkness. Listen to these things that that, um, um, uh, he says. Um, You have me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. What? You put me there. Here's another statement Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? <clears throat> and then the psalm ends I'm still in darkness. Folks, it's what our spiritual forebears used to call the dark night of the soul. Um. they call them times of spiritual desertions where God seems to have deserted us. And so we cry something like the psalmist that I just read you out of Psalm 88. Now gang, in those times of spiritual suffering, hear me, I know of no other way out Of those Psalm 88 times, I know of no other way other than a reliance upon God's providence. Gang, our present circumstances, despite what they may appear to be, are best for us. Let me read you two Thomas Watson quotes. God knows what is the fittest pasture to put his sheep in. Every crosswind shall at last blow me to the right port. Here's the second one. Trust him where you cannot trace him. God is most in his way when we think he is most out of the way. Here's another quote from a different Puritan by the name of John Flavel. He said, He would rather hear me groan here than howl hereafter. Listen, his love is judicious, not fond. He consults my good rather than my ease. His love is judicious. Not maudlin' sentimentality. And so he orchestrates circumstances where the psalmist says, you put me in the depths of the pit. You put me there. And what is it, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to help you out of there? A thoroughgoing, deep, Commitment to Regina Mundy. Guys, you, you, uh, I've told you about this guy before. His name is William Cooper, although it's spelled Cowper, but they, it's pronounced Cooper. And he was regularly in depression, tried to kill himself a couple of times, but he's the one that gave us the hymn. Um, there's a fountain filled with blood, but he also gave us the one that I came back from Israel with. Do you remember when I came back from Israel? and I sang it to you, that um, God moves in mysterious ways. Here's, here's, the, here's the stanza that I, that I tried to emphasize on that Sunday morning. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. It's only on this side that the providence looks like it's frowning. And so, ladies and gentlemen, every new trial, every new trial comes as a summons to God's people to trust him. That's in essence what he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. I'm not going to take that away from you, Paul. Because you're better off with it. And I would rather hear you cry now than howl forever. And the thing that I want is the thing that produces grace. And it's usually some instance of Spiritual suffering that will bring us to the place where we're finally humbled enough that he will grant grace. When we learn to kiss the rod, he will put it away. And what will allow you or enable you to kiss the rod? Regina Mundy. Gang, God's universal purpose in the midst of all Christians in their suffering is that you and I might find more contentment in God and less reliance on self and the world. Everything that He authors in our life. Is so that it can produce more contentment in Him than this continued madness of a pursuit of reliance upon self in the world. Folks, suffering is designed by God as a means by which He can wean us off self and on to grace. You know, I, I, um, I have been in the ministry a little over 45 years. But never once have I ever had somebody tell me that the really deep lessons of their life have come through times of ease and comfort. No one has ever said that to me. Because it isn't true and you know it. I have had people say to me, every significant advance that I have ever made in grasping the truths, the deep truths of God's love, have come through suffering. And so all of these things that so, that, our, that our soul recoils at are things that God is using to produce more contentment as he weans us off of self-reliance and God, worldly involvement. Guys, what is it that tells you that? Regina Mundi, the governess of the universe, providence, there has never been nor will there ever be something that happened to you accidentally. And behind that frowning providence, if you trace it far enough, you'll find a smiling face. God, as he weans his people off of this pursuit of self-advancement. Now, guys, that's the first place where I think providence, I'm trying to apply providence. It's the first place where it will help you. As your soul aches, you can remind you can take comfort in those things, I hope. Here's the other one. Here's the second one. I've got three, but as I said, we'll probably get to only two tonight. The other place that providence will help you is in forgiveness. Not forgiveness that you get from God, but in forgiveness that you need to grant to somebody else. It is God's providence that allows us to take steps towards forgiveness. Let me tell you a story that I, I think will illustrate the whole thing. When we were still in Ocala, and I don't know how long we have been there, we, I, 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 I couldn't have been much beyond thirty-one, thirty-two. On a Saturday night, I get a phone call, you know, and I like to go to bed early on Saturday night. Actually, I like to go to bed early every night, but I, I really like to go to bed early on Saturday nights. And the phone call came about 10 o'clock. It wasn't hugely late, but that's late on a Saturday night for me. And on the other end was a woman who was screaming. And she was saying, in fact, I had never met her, at least at that moment. She's, and she's screaming at me, you've got to go get my husband. You've got to go get, and I don't even know how she got my name. I'm sure somebody told her about, anyway, but she called me and she said, you've got to go. And I, I said, she told me who she was, and um, her name was Kitty. His name is Jimmy. Kitty and Jimmy Johnson. And Jimmy Johnson was out in this honky-tonk pretty close to my house, drinking himself into, himself into oblivion. And here's why he was doing that. Jimmy and Kitty had both been married once before. In a previous marriage, Jimmy Johnson, who, by the way, <laughs> went on to make a fortune. I mean, um, in Florida, did you know that mobile homes is a big, a big industry down there? Did you know that? I mean, just go down there. Well, what he, you know, these mobile homes have to go down the highway, and they go down on tires and axles. And he would get under these mobile homes and pull out the axles and refurbish the axles and resell them. Made a fortune. But I, that was a little bit later after this. <laughs> but um, you got to go get my husband. Jimmy They'd both been married before, and Jimmy had a daughter who was 10 years old. At least at the time, she was 10 years old. And they, Jimmy and Kitty had had another child, and the child was 18 months old. So they had a child 18 months and another child from Jimmy's previous marriage, who was 10. On one particular day, I mean, they had a beautiful home, swimming pool. On one particular day, the little girl, and I forget her name, the little girl goes in to change her jeans. And the 18-month-old found the pool and drowned. And that was like on a Thursday, and this was on a Saturday night that Kitty was calling me saying, you've got to go get my... And I went out to this bar, and I can't remember whether I went in. It seems like I didn't. And that he... I met him in the parking lot. He got in the car and he was drunk. And I took him home and said, we'll meet tomorrow, which we did and. Develop the fastest of relationships. But you can imagine, I, 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 I hope, how Kitty despised that little 10-year-old. That little 10-year-old cost her her 18-month-old. Um, and so the process began of trying to help Kitty see the need to forgive this little 10-year-old. Every time we were together, and we were together often, Jimmy Johnson couldn't get enough of truth. And Kitty was not far behind him. But I would go out to his office and we would study the Westminster Confession of Faith. And and this man was... Blowing and going corporately. And everything stopped when I got there. Not because I was special, but because he was so hungry for everything. So we kept meeting with Kitty. One year. Two years. Three years. Four years. Five years. You know, I said that she was 10. I think she was 12. I think she was 12. The little girl was 12. Because at about age, when she was graduating from high school, she had decided she was going to join the Air Force. The little girl. She was like 17 or 18 now. And I was sitting with Kitty at a pizza joint. It was just me and Kitty. And telling her again that she had to forgive her 17-year-old. And she said to me, I want to get there. How can I get there? With large doses of Regina Monday. Over and over and over again, reminding myself that the God of all grace did not slip off his throne when my 18-month-old died. She said, I'm not sure, but I've got to get there. And I said to her, Kitty, I I get that. As long as we agree about the goal. And the goal is forgiveness. I remember dealing with a woman in Florida. And she'd been married to the same man for 25 years. And on their honeymoon, they were in some city that was having a parade. And um, as the parade went down the street, these little... I don't know what they call them, Uh, majorettes, I guess, were tossing the batons, and, and she was in a skimpy outfit. And the husband said something about the girl in the skimpy outfit. And 25 years later, she's still holding that grudge. And their marriage was in shambles about yours? What is it, ladies and gentlemen, that you have not been able to set aside? What anger is it that you cannot get over? What forgiveness needs to be granted that has been withheld? Well, I can tell you what will help. Providence the notion that God has never said, oh, I wish I'd have done that differently. The knowledge that nothing in life is ever accidental. Now, gang, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying I don't know of any other way. Folks, the promise of Romans eight twenty eight, you know what Romans eight twenty eight is, for all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. You know that one, gang. That is not only a promise; it is a fact. In every situation you're in that is complicated for you, is a summons. For you to believe in that fact. Gang, that promise described, that fact described in Romans 828, God doesn't ask me to feel it. He asks me to believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not what I feel. I am what God tells me I am. And so based on the beauties of Regina Mundi, the governess of the universe, I get through it. It takes a while. I think it took Kitty ten years, maybe less, seven years. But without a solid commitment on your part to the governance of God, you will never get there. And so your marriage will be ruined too. And you'll turn into a bitter old man or a bitter old woman. Because you never learn to forgive. I'm saying that providence will help you forgive. Now, let me say that differently. Providence allows me to take steps towards. Forgiveness. One more quote from Thomas Watson, and I'm done. Thomas Watson said, Our maladies shall be our medicines. God makes our adversity our university. All because he seeks to wean us off of a confidence in self and an involvement in worldly entanglements. Our Father, would you, um, would you refresh your people with these thoughts? Would you... Um, Would you allow them to see that Christianity is not simply about thinking, but it's based on thinking. It's based on thinking rightly and deeply. And once we do, then we can go on to face everything that this very complex world throws at us. Father, I pray for my brother or sister who is here tonight who is still holding on to something and has been for years who can't seem to shake it. Would you give them a deeper confidence in you, the great governor of the universe? The one who has a plan for all things and at the same time asks me to trust him and obey him and to make decisions and choices that will reflect that I belong to him. That you plan, but it, does ne- it never excuses me from acting in faith as a response. Might your people be refreshed by those reminders. And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.